G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Um, way back in 2001, um, Jim Collins, uh, you might know him, caused, he caused a real stir in the corporate world when he released a book, um, his now famous book, Good to Great. Have you read that one? Um, what was different? What caused a stir? What was it about Jim Collins's book at the time? Um, Good to Great didn't fit the mould. Um, I think there's probably a bit of a mould when it comes to business books, isn't it? It's usually the rehashing, the recycling of of um, ideas that everyone kind of knows, but the author has been gripped by, they think it's revolutionary, so they put a book out about it, and uh, if it's got a nice enough cover, it gets sort of, you know, good sales, and on it goes. That's often how business books seem to be. Um, Collins was different. Um, Collins's book was the, the product, really, of serious research. It emerged from thousands of hours of analysis. Him and his research assistants uh, drew on decades and decades of data... And his book had big implications. So it was called Good to Great, Good to Great, because it mapped how actual businesses succeeded in moving from being eh, good, good businesses to being really great businesses. And of course, he's got the ways to describe that. Uh, now, why do I mention all that? I mention it because Collins puts his finger on one well, many, but one particular significant factor um, that's relevant to churches and one in particular that's relevant to our study of 1 Corinthians 15 in just a few moments, it's a warning. Here it is, I'll read it to you. So Colin says, The moment a leader allows himself to become the primary reality people worry about, rather than reality being the primary reality, you have a recipe for mediocrity or worse. Do you follow the warning? Have you ever seen a church? Have you ever seen a workplace? Um, have you ever seen um, a club that you've been a part of or a charity that you've been involved in where the leader, you know, the boss or the minister, um, I suppose it could be the teacher even, has made it all about him or all about her for that matter? The moment a leader allows himself to become the primary reality people worry about, rather than reality being the primary reality, you have a recipe for mediocrity, or worse. So you show up on Monday morning, can you picture it there? And honestly, the thing on your mind isn't, oh, how are we going to calculate the roof pitch for this place that we're building? It, it, it certainly isn't the family that you're trying to build the house for. Um, it isn't the, the public being better served by the, the system that you're developing for them this week. Uh, your mind isn't on the students and how are they going to get the periodic table out of my head or off the wall or out of their textbook and into their heads. Nor is it on the hungry customers whom you're going to satisfy as you bring food to their tables. The primary reality, really the only reality on your mind when you show up to work on Monday morning is the boss, the manager. The moment a leader allows himself to become the primary reality people worry about. And perhaps that leader or that boss or that minister, whomever it is, 
Um, you come to see, don't, they, don't you, uh, over time, their profound insecurities, um, the way that they are so caught up in how they're seen, perhaps, or whether people respect them enough. Uh, it's actually a relief when they're not around, isn't it? Because then you can finally get on with the job that you're there to do. The moment a leader allows himself to become the primary reality people worry about, rather than reality being the primary reality, you have a recipe for mediocrity or worse. Now, 1 Corinthians 15. I love 1 Corinthians 15, um, and I suspect many of us do, even just especially these first 11 verses which Peter read to us there. Um, I think we love it, don't we? Is, Is this your experience? We love it because it reminds us of the solid basis for our faith, uh, that the, we, it reminds us of the reality of Jesus Christ, uh, those facts from history of him dead and buried and raised again and appeared to many um, over a period of time. Doesn't it strengthen our resolve as modern Christians to, um, yes, I'm going to continue to believe in that old, old gospel. It is rock solid. I know that it's true. It's verifiable. It's Uh, It was well documented, it was widely witnessed, the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection. But here's the thing, if that's all it is to us, um, perhaps there is a whole other dimension to this chapter in the context of the book of Corinthians that we've maybe missed. Namely, why on earth did Paul feel a need to write this chapter to the church in Corinth? See, and I put it to us this morning that 1 Corinthians 15 was written by Paul to the Corinthian church precisely because, here we go, because the primary reality for our dear Corinthians had become something other than the gospel of the Lord Jesus that he summarises for them. Now, just cast your mind back, those of you who have been here over the last week's Um, as we've been working our way through. Cast your mind back. We've heard Paul, haven't we, call for dramatic change in the church in Corinth. It was high time that some of their richer, weightier, heftier individuals start to recognise their fellow Christians as equal members of the body of Christ, especially those poorer, can you remember, hungrier ones from early in chapter 11, those less important members, the, one who didn't, the ones who didn't seem the primary reality for the church in Corinth. That was high time they changed their view. It was high time they changed the way they did church itself from privileging the showy but selfish uh, speakers of tongues Paul has championed, hasn't he, the comparatively um, unspectacular, plain speaking of the good old gospel. And it was high time they brought some structure, um, showed some restraint to their church services so that Jesus, Jesus might be the, the message that rings out from them there in Corinth. Do you see the connection? Paul is asking them, what is the primary reality that pulls you along to church every week? Why are you even here? What dominates your mind? What occupies, um, dominates your thoughts as you drive into the car park there at church in Corinth? Um, If it is personalities and performances and prestige of those privileged few, then it is high time that an entirely different, (laughs) an entirely real 
primary reality dominate your church. The moment a leader allows himself to become the primary reality people worry about rather than reality being the primary reality, you have a recipe for mediocrity or worse. Paul wants the primary reality of a church in Corinth to be the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And for you, if church or ministry or even... um, work or sport or that charity that you're involved with or that club has become dominated by some reality other than Jesus, then I hope that you're going to find here some relief, some helpful reframing of your own perspective uh, coming from rediscovering what's really real, the primary reality, Jesus himself in the Gospel from 1 Corinthians 15. Really long introduction, right? Let's pray and get into 1 Corinthians. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, would you please attune us to the deep and lasting truths that really do, or at least really should, shape our whole life, and certainly our church life, as well as our work and our home life. God, would you give us, please, a deeper awareness of what is presently motivating us, perhaps even things or people that really shouldn't have anywhere near the influence that they do over our lives, perhaps we give them too much influence. And perhaps sometimes, and in some instances, we're barely even aware that we're living as if those folks are the primary reality instead of Jesus. God, would you help us, especially as a church, to have a deliberate awareness of Jesus at the heart of all we do and say and think and act in our church community life together this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So, when everyone at work fears the boss, instead of being focused on the business, can the culture change? Um, The answer is, yeah, of course. Of course the culture can change. Of course it can change. Um, Sadly, oftentimes, have you seen this, the thing that brings change is that an even more dominant personality enters the fray, enters the mix, an even more fearsome character, an even more controlling perhaps or prickly or just sort of slimy, you know, brings change of a sort. And maybe from these opening verses um, here in 1 Corinthians 15, you're wondering, you're thinking, is that what Paul's playing at actually? Uh, does Because he puts such an emphasis on I, myself, the place I have had in your church life. Take a look here at these opening verses of 1 Corinthians 15 with me, would you please? Now, brothers, or brothers and sisters, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand By this gospel you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise you've believed in vain. What do you make of it? Is Paul reasserting himself as the primary reality uh, around whom these poor Corinthians ought to reorder their church lives, even their Christian lives? Is that what's going on? Um, Friends, I I don't think that is what's going on in those verses. Let's take another look. Um, Because Paul, yes, Paul has had a historic connection with him, um, starting the church there in Corinth. But he's very clear, isn't he, about what the heart 
what the centre, what the core of that connection is. And it's not really him at all. If you take a look there in verse 1, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Or verse 2, hold firmly to the word um, I preached to you. Again, cast your minds back to the last couple of chapters. Haven't I been pleading with you, chapter 14, Paul to the Corinthians, to major on what? On the word. Speak the word to one another. Won't you make your church services about the word and speaking that? Um, Every one of you has a word of some sort, as in some kind of reflection of the gospel of Jesus. Chapter 14, verse 16, you've got a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Whatever form it takes, it doesn't matter. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you've received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. So do you see the the overwhelmingly important reality in their past, in your past, you Corinthians, is the gospel that you encountered the gospel, that yes, I preached to you. Um, In your present, the overwhelmingly important reality in your present is the gospel on which you've taken your stand. What, What is it that guarantees your future, that assures you of where you're going? It is the word that I preached to you, if you hold firmly to it. What primary reality must they reshape their life to? It's not Paul. It's the gospel. Uh, Now, before we move on to the substance of what that word is, because he goes on to summarise it from verse 3 and following, um, do we need to hear this stuff just in those first two verses? Because you see, every church, including our church, but every church that you've ever been a part of, has some strong personalities, doesn't it? Um, Every church, including our church, has some people who hold positional power. Even if you're part of a church that has a very flat structure, that's true even. Uh, There are ministry leaders. She's a deacon. He's the minister. They're the elders. Every church, including our church, um, has some people who have been here for years, maybe even started the church. They've been around for years and it just feels more like it is their church than that it is my church. Feels like it revolves around them, do you see? And church, it does come to feel in some ways like it revolves around these characters or these people in positions of power or those long-standing members. And can you think how that plays out? Therefore, every church and our church, we need reminding, I think, hey, do you remember the gospel? Do you remember the word? The word of God didn't start with us. That's what Paul had to tell the Corinthians, wasn't it? It didn't start with that person at church that you find kind of intimidating. Uh, They don't have a monopoly on the word of God. We don't cling to the gospel because the minister tells us to each week. As if it belongs to the minister. We 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 don't come to church because grandpa says that I have to. And he's been here since the beginning. We cling to the word of the gospel preached to us. Why? Because by it we are saved. Because by it I am saved. Because by it you are saved. 
Um, By it, we were converted at some point in our past. On it, right now, we stand together. To it, we cling through thick and thin. In it, we hope and trust. The gospel that I preached to you guys. Do you remember Corinth? Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. So if uh, in your life, if you need to, I don't know, subvert a toxic culture somewhere in your life, you need to find sort of a solid basis on which to stand in your life, you feel a bit pushed around in that space of your life that just seems to revolve around those more powerful personalities or those people who have been there since the year dot or whatever it is, if you need to subvert a toxic culture or even just a complicated one or an unhelpful one or a tense culture, then live like the biggest thing in your life is the biggest thing in your life. There's a starting point. There's a starting point. Which Paul now then spells out in summary form from verse 3. Let's take a look there together from verse 3. Where he says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Is it fair to say in our modern culture, um, we tend to think that newer is better? Right? Paul's sort of giving you a little bit of a history lesson here to the Corinthians. We tend to think in our modern culture that newer is better. We're under, I think, the mistaken illusion that now is categorically better than anything that has been before um, and that the stuff that really matters in a historic kind of sense of genuine significance is stuff that is happening right now or um, progress that we have only just made or progress that we're just on the cusp of making, we're just about there. Um, I boldly put it to you that in our culture at the present time, we're not great students of history, do you see? Um, as a culture. Now, slightly more troubling, I think it means that we're, we're a bit suspicious of any claim that an event from ancient history, do you see, could be of lasting, permanent, enduring significance for our lives. Now, do you see why that's a problem? Um, here's why. Because could the resurrection of Jesus, yep, from ancient history from like forever ago, could the resurrection of Jesus really be that important? Of profound significance to my life? Could it be truly, deeply a thing that matters to the human race? Paul is telling us, um, more God is telling us, isn't he, in, uh, in God's word to us here in 1 Corinthians 15, that not only did it happen, as in the, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, not only did it happen, you can bank your life on that, not only was it promised all along according to the Scriptures, according to the Scriptures, more, the resurrection of Jesus in history deserves to occupy the place of first importance as you put together the primary reality of your life. Is that what these verses are saying? 
that the resurrection of Jesus, yet from ancient history, deserves to occupy the place of first importance as you put together the primary reality of your life. I think that's what he's driving at. Verse 3, For what I received, I passed on to you, Corinthians, as a first importance. And he condenses it down to four bullet points. Dead, buried, raised, appeared. Uh, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve, and then the Five Hundred as well, and then James and the other apostles, and lastly to me, Paul, down at verse 8 there. Now maybe for the Corinthians, actually, given their sort of church politics, perhaps it was helpful for them to notice that none, as in zero of those names, those witnesses, those characters, the scriptures, none of them belong to Corinth. Perhaps that's part of Paul's point, actually. Your, your faith rests on something outside of you, O Corinthians, and that's a good thing. Outside of your culture, outside of your little world. Your unity as a church rests on something much bigger and broader, unburdened by whatever tensions or tussles are going on in your church community. But let's think about that together. Is the death, burial, resurrection, appearance of Jesus, is that our first importance? Is that our primary reality in life together? That one man, Jesus, really did die for your sins. Is that the primary reality in your life? That one man, Jesus, really did, he rose to life from the grave. Is that of first importance in your life? I really like the way um, David Garland puts it, and I think we'll come back to this next week as we finish off chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, David Garland, he says this, he says, God will defeat the last enemy. He's talking about death. God will defeat the last enemy. And then he says this, he says, while graveyards may remind one of the brevity of life, while graveyards may remind one of the brevity of life, the resurrection ensures the brevity of death. While graveyards may remind one of the brevity of life, the resurrection ensures the brevity of death. What a thing to have as the primary reality around which you shape your life. The resurrection of Jesus. Of first importance. See, does that at least put some of our, you know, our conflict, our tension, our more dominant personalities into some kind of perspective? Yes, the brevity of life, but also the brevity of death, the resurrection of Jesus. Let me say one quick thing to um, a, a person here, if you're in, this, in these shoes, if you're a newer person and uh, newer to the faith, I guess, newer to Christianity, perhaps um, suspicious, uh, I guess, of the degree to which an ancient event like the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth could have an enduring significance in your life. Um, may I gently challenge you with this? All of the New Testament writers, I mean, we have 1 Corinthians 15 in front of us at the moment, but all of the New Testament writers present Jesus rising from the dead as a plain fact. It happened. Um, and they weren't fools either. You can read their writings. I mean, that is the New Testament. You can, they're not fools, these 
uh, people who wrote the New Testament. Some of them were initially sceptics, in fact, some of them (laughs) initially were the harshest critics, and we're going to see that in just a moment. More than that, that Jesus would die for our sins to bring us to God. More than that, that he would return to life for our life eternal, all promised in advance by God through the gospel, uh, through the scriptures, the brevity of death, foretold in advance. That's what they're reading from before. Do you remember when Peter read Psalm 16? You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Written centuries before Jesus came along. Let me challenge you gently. How would your life be reshaped? What would it look like reshaped by the conviction that death was not the end and that life was on the cards for you? How would that look? How would your life look differently if the brevity of death was assured? I'll leave that with you as some food for thought. Lastly, last uh, point for us together. So we've seen that Paul has preached Jesus to them and uh, and Paul has name-dropped a bunch of first century celebrity Christians who would gladly verify the resurrection for them were they to go and ask Peter or James or the Twelve or the Apostles or the rest... Um, Paul has reminded them of Scripture for telling the whole thing according to the Scriptures, according to the Scriptures. Yes, Paul wants their faith to depend on the word that he has preached to them. Lastly, Paul is categorically not trying to establish Paulianity. (laughs) If you think Paul preached to Corinth to create little mini-Pauls, if you think Paul is the hero of Paul's Gospel, can you answer me this question? Then why on earth does he cut himself down so savagely? Have a look at these uh, verses. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. Uh, Then he, as in the risen Jesus, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. That's a weird way of speaking. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Are you someone who um, kind of hates going to church actually? From these verses, do you realise this? You can put it this way. Paul is saying, I was the patron saint of people who hate church. I was the first among them. That's how much I'm the hero of this story. In other words, not at all. I'm not preaching Jesus because, ah, I just always love church. Just a churchy kind of guy. You know, the missionary vibe, it was just my thing from the beginning. No, no, Paul is saying. I tried to destroy the church. I'm literally the last person that Jesus should have appeared to, but he did anyway. He appeared to me. He appeared to me. He worked in me. It says a lot about him, doesn't it? Verse 9, let's take another look there. For I am the least of the apostles. Do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, as in the other apostles, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. 
So let me ask you this morning, if you're someone who kind of gets dragged along a bit, gosh, it's a drag Sunday morning, here it comes again. Or perhaps your friends talk that way. You don't feel that way about church, but your friends talk that way, or your children talk that way about church. Gosh, it's a drag, I just... One thing that you could say to that friend who says, going to church, it's a drag, I hate it, I don't want to do it. One thing that you could say is, yeah, neither did Paul. He didn't want to go to church either. Um, in fact, he hated church a whole lot more than you did. To which they'll probably say, which Paul, what are you talking about? <laughs> and you can say that Paul in the Bible, the Paul who wrote about a quarter of the New Testament, that Paul hated church more than you tried to destroy it. So here's the thing. If it is in the character of God to take a hold of a hateful man who hated church, hated the people, hated, tried to destroy the church, if it is in the character of God to take hold of a hateful man and teach him love for a church, a church that is as unlovable as the church in Corinth, if you follow me, then that is a God that I want to have working in my life. Don't you want that kind of a God working in your life as well? If it is in the character of God to take hold of a destructive man who sought to destroy churches and kill Christians and instead inspired and empowered him to build churches, to preach life for Christians, to extend forgiveness to Christians and mercy and chance after chance after chance. That is the kind of God that I want to inspire and empower my life, isn't it? If it is in the character of God to take hold of death itself and promise life to sinners, not just to saints, promise life to sinners, that is a God whose grace I want as the primary reality in my life. Is it yours as well? Let me leave us all with this question. How would our church life look together? How would our mission together here in Howrah? How would our conversation together um, look? How would our prayer life, how would our praise go from good to great if resurrection was of first importance and the primary reality around which we build our lives? How would life at home, life, life in our family, life at school, Look, if Jesus, if life, if resurrection was the beating heart, the primary reality of my everyday. Something for us to think about. How about we pray together? Please pray with me. Our dear dear Heavenly Father and God, as we began with, would you give us a focused and a deliberate awareness of Jesus at the heart of all that motivates us here at church? And Father, we pray that that gospel-centred, Jesus-centred perspective would then radiate out from here at church to the rest of life. Father, may we be men and women, may we be boys and girls who aren't stumped or stifled by politics, whether church politics or office politics or family friction, but instead who display the truth that Jesus' life and our God's great grace dominate our view of what life is about, dominate our view of what we can contribute to a situation, even a prickly one. 
Father, we pray that you would use us to be a breath of fresh air where things have become stale or even toxic. Use us, O God, as the aroma of Christ throughout our lives, please. And Father, thank you that the reality that we live by is a reality of grace. Grace that our sins are forgiven through Christ. Grace that we're even alive now. Grace that we can serve you as your children in this world. Grace that we will live in resurrection beyond the grave. What a different reality Christ has breathed into our lungs, into our life. A grace that leads us to love. And we thank you for it all, Father. In Jesus' name, Amen.